0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode, you've heard about the Knights Templar and how they guarded pilgrims in the Holy Land and how they discovered unimaginable treasure beneath Solomon's Temple. But did you know they escaped Europe with their gold and wealth and came to the New World? Everybody thinks that it was because they watched the movies Da
2: Vinci Code and National Treasure that they think that the Founding Fathers were in fact practicing some ancient ritual that they had revised. But what people have to understand is that there was a continuous layering of certain values associated with the Knights Templar and even before the Knights Templar that really culminated in most of the founding fathers and what they were originally thinking as the establishment of the United States of America.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateurs. You need to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors, is a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. They utilize the latest scientific technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them at this new number, 631-552-5835. 631-552-5835. That's 631-552-5835. Email paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night.
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption. The secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
1: Welcome to your Friday. Bill Mann is standing by to discuss the Knights Templar in the New World. Well, we're settling in here in Verga, just outside of Kalamata in southern Greece. Mornings have been reasonably cool, but things quickly heat up into the high 30s by about 10 a.m. Spending lots of time on the beach, catching up on some reading, uh, North brought his GoPro camera, and he's attached it to his uh, diving mask, and he's capturing some great video of small schools of fish in the Messinian Bay that he's hoping to post to Instagram. Uh, just an update. Still no sign of Bob the tortoise, but we're keeping an eye out for Zach's long-lost pet from last summer, and we have it on good authority. He's somewhere near the house. In 1398, almost 100 years before Columbus arrived in the New World, the Scottish Prince Henry Sinclair, Earl of Orkney, sailed to what is today Nova Scotia, where his presence was recorded by Micmac Indian legends. This was the same Prince Henry Sinclair who offered refuge to the Knights Templar fleeing the persecution unleashed against the order by French King Philippe the Fair at the beginning of the 14th century. With evidence from archaeological sites, indigenous legend, and sacred geometry handed down by the Templar order to the Freemasons, Bill Mann has now rediscovered the site of the settlement established by Sinclair and his Templar followers in the New World. William F. Mann is an officer of the Knights Templar of Canada's Grand Executive Committee, a member of its Grand Council, and serves as the Sovereign Great Priory's Grand Archivist. He's the author of Templar Sanctuaries in North America, The Templar Meridians, The Knights Templar in the New World, and The Thirteenth Pillar. Bill Mann, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Good, Richard. How are you? I'm terrific, thank you. The Knights Templar... What was their purpose in the Holy Land? What were they up to?
2: Well, it's really interesting. Uh, if anybody knows the history, the real history of the Knights Templar, they started out as the, uh, the Pope's personal uh, bodyguard and uh, really the Vatican's or the Catholic Church's uh, uh, stormtroopers, as you say. Um, it's, it really started uh, just prior to the First Crusades. Uh, The Knights Templar supposedly uh, possessed uh, certain knowledge of certain treasures, relics, artifacts that uh, lay below the uh, Temple of Solomon. So under the sort of guise of protecting the pilgrims to the Holy Land, there were nine original Knights Templar who uh, discovered uh, rare artifacts, genealogical records, a number of treasures associated with the original temple under the Temple of Solomon. And under that guise, they went to the Pope, and the Pope uh, automatically uh, realized uh, um, or was suspicious of what they had discovered. But uh, under the guise of establishing them as sort of the shock troops for the First Crusades through St. Bernard, uh, who rallied the troops, per se, they uh, they were really established in 1129 as the uh, Pope's personal army.
1: And what else did they find in the Holy Land aside from treasure? You mentioned genealogical records, and this has to do with now we get into a discussion of the Holy Grail, which is kind of a metaphor for the bloodline of, of Jesus Christ, right?
2: It is, and supposedly they discovered the genealogical records, um, attributed to the marriage of uh, uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene and uh, the ancestral records uh, showing the um, descendants of that, uh, of that holy bloodline and that holy bloodline moving through the Merovingian, through the Frank uh, uh, royalty into uh, around 1000 AD into some of the lesser nobility
1: of uh, France itself. And uh, we'll come back to the uh, the Holy Grail, but I, I want to go back to the Holy Land and other things they discovered. Talk to me about the the discovery of uh, latitudinal and longitudinal uh, positioning centuries before it was really perfected. I guess in the seventeenth century.
2: Well, if you consider that uh, it was perfected in the 17th century, I'd like to say that they discovered or rediscovered ancient knowledge. Ancient knowledge that uh, is reflected in basic uh, ancient Freemasonry um, through moral allegory and sacred geometry. They discovered uh, long-lost knowledge, which uh, allowed them to become the uh, greatest seafaring uh, uh, group at the time, and uh, also to essentially be able to reestablish longitude latitudes based on ancient
1: mapping that they also found. And uh, this knowledge, coupled with you know tremendous wealth, uh, they amassed this fortune of of gold and so forth. Didn't they also really develop the first banking system? They did.
2: They did, and it was really interesting what they. Uh, what they developed. Essentially, at that time, pilgrims were uh, uh, subjected to continuous uh, raids along the pilgrimages to Jerusalem because at that time it was held within uh, Muslim or Saracen hands. So they discovered or developed a system whereby they would say if you were leaving Paris, you would deposit your money in the Paris preceptory, you would get a chit of some kind and you would be able to cash that in uh, along the way at various preceptories or strongholds and in Jerusalem itself. So that's how the banking system was really developed. And there is uh, rumor, and uh, um, I'll go beyond that. There's much more than rumor that uh, Switzerland, the banking system in Switzerland, is reflective of that first Templar uh, banking system.
1: They must have amassed so much wealth not only through just you know finding uh, a treasure and so forth uh, coupled with knowledge they must have presented a, a great threat uh, to not only the Pope uh, but but kings and queens they would have rivaled their power I'm guessing
2: Absolutely. If you consider them to be guardians of the Holy Bloodline, along with this other ancient knowledge, they were constantly under threat of elimination by not only the French uh, uh, the French king, but also the Vatican itself. But they managed for over 300 uh, years to balance that through, uh, obviously, uh, negotiation and... Uh, Uh, it's better, if you do know a secret, it's better to keep that secret in your back pocket, per se. And uh, that allowed them to gain the power. And uh, the only person that they really answered to was the Pope itself.
1: And you mentioned that they started off as nine. Did their numbers grow?
2: Their numbers grew immensely. There was obviously some underlying reason why it attracted the uh, at the time, uh, nobility of a, of a lesser nature, the younger sons, there were a number of younger sons that, um, that joined the order, per se, to prove themselves. And that's where the whole aspect of the, uh, the analogy of In Search of the Holy Grail came from. Uh, they were, the knights were promoting a purity of uh, heart and soul. But they were also suggesting that if you belonged to the order, then you would share in certain secrets that had been discovered. But as usual, what you had is that you had an inner circle, an inner circle that started with your nine original knights and the families. Uh, you would have an inner circle, and then you would have the, uh, the outer circle of the order.
1: What do you suppose they found under... In the, in the chamber beneath where Solomon's temple once stood, do you think they found the Ark of the Covenant, for example?
2: Well, it's interesting. A lot of people ask me, what is the actual temporary treasure? And I'll say to people, what do you think it is? It could be the Ark of the Covenant. It could be the grail itself. It could be the cantor opera and golden table associated with the temple. But I like to tell people, always look beyond the physical treasure, What is it that morally and uh, spiritually did they discover? They discovered records. They discovered, as we say, genealogical records. They discovered things that allowed them to, through certain knowledge, to really gain a higher level of understanding and wisdom. And that's what really attracted uh, the numbers that, uh, through the... uh, Uh, through the various preceptories and the farms that they established all over Europe.
1: How did they go uh, run afoul of King Philip of of France and when?
2: Well, it uh, all culminated in uh, what we call Black Friday, Friday the 13th, uh, October uh, 1307. But it was with be coming about for the longest time obviously the french nobility in terms of certain wars they had to finance uh, armies um and they were heavily in debt with the uh, with the templars so it uh, came to a point that king philippe uh along with uh, clement v they conspired to uh not only suppress the templars and to eliminate them but to uh, access their tremendous wealth and this notion that there was certain certain hidden knowledge that they could gain
1: and it's at this point that the i guess the surviving uh, members of the knights templar decided to get out of dodge and and take their their uh, their treasure and their knowledge with them correct
2: that's right and the uh, the were- The whole story is based upon this notion that they were warned ahead of time to the point that they were able to sail away from their port, La Rochelle, France, and disperse to not only England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, but also Denmark and Portugal. And in Portugal, the Knights Templar grew into the Knights of Christ under Prince Henry the Navigator.
1: Ah. Now— uh, before we get into uh, the Scottish prince, Henry Sinclair, I wanted to ask you one other thing, and that is the connection, if any, between the, the Knights Templar and the Rosicrucians.
2: Well, that's an interesting question. I'm a Rosicrucian also. Um, There's—at this point, I will say that there's not a definitive connection that can be proven— but there's obviously a, a real connection in terms of not not only the the understanding of knowledge and how it can aspire to an understanding and a wisdom, but uh, in Rosicrucian terms, you talk about a spiritual transformation. And that is what uh, really the underlying attraction to the Knights Templar, the poor knights of the Temple of Solomon, was all about.
1: They used they shared similar symbols, didn't they?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So there, the, there's the whole question, what really did they discover under the Temple of Solomon? And we know the, that the Jewish high priests practiced the earlier mysteries the Egyptian mysteries, uh, the Christian mysteries. So there was a combination of, of bringing together knowledge, uh, which really resented uh, or resulted in the absolute power. And that absolute power obviously threatened the the French uh, king, uh, along with the Vatican.
1: The the Rosicrucians, it was said, uh, were very uh, skilled in alchemy. Could they turn? Did, is it believed that they could turn lead into gold, or was that a metaphor? Uh,
2: that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor. Right now, uh, in in current day time, um, we know that there are certain processes that uh, from a chemical point of view that you can turn uh, certain minerals into into what's representative of gold. But at the time, it was more of a metaphor for a spiritual transformation, very much like Freemasonry. Freemasonry, uh, the lessons are built upon the rebuilding of the temple. In Rosicrucian uh, societies, it's based on the alchemical transformation from the raw to the pure, or from the raw man, the raw soul, to the pure man.
1: When the, the Knights Templar discovered this genealogical information that Jesus had married and had children, and his descendants, uh, be, you know, married into and became the royal families, the Merovingians of uh, which w- would la- would later become France and so forth, were they perceived as being heretics because of that?
2: Well, the the whole question is is that they really discovered them. Those records, and uh, at this point, I just want to caution you: always look beyond. You know, there was a notion that if they presented that, along with if they discovered the bones of Jesus and the in the Holy Family, then the Vatican essentially there would be no purpose within the Vatican or the Catholic Church, the priests. Obviously at that time were portraying themselves that you, in order to reach the higher spiritual level, in order to speak to God, you had to go through the church and the priests. With, uh, if they had discovered uh, those artifacts along with the genealogical records, obviously any man that practice, whether it be Rosicrucian or uh, masonry values, could achieve or could speak with God uh, singularly or directly. So I always tell people don't get hum- hung up on that per se. That is not the final answer. The final answer is the Knights Templar possessed enough of the understanding that it would have threatened the church to its very core. Right, right. Even if they didn't possess that. But if they, if they portrayed it as a secret that they did possess that, it would be all much
1: more powerful. It, perhaps even a greater threat than than Martin Luther's reformation presented several centuries later absolutely
2: absolutely there's this, always this underlying question does god exist does a higher being a, a creator a, a supreme being god himself does he exist and how do you how do you attain that higher level of understanding so that you can speak with him
1: all right, so let's, let's talk about uh, Prince Henry Sinclair, the Earl of Orkney. Uh, what was his connection with the Knights Templar?
2: Well, interesting enough, if you understand that uh, a portion of the Knights Templar after 1307 sailed into Scotland and were hidden by uh, uh, the Scottish uh, families, um, coming out of that were the Sinclairs which was one of the original, St. Clair was one of the original Norman families. And what they achieved uh, over approximately 80 years, they uh, uh, developed, obviously, through generations. They reinforced the order to the point that Prince Henry St. Clair, based on the information that he possessed, that the St. Clair family possessed, sailed to the New World in 1398. And landed in Nova Scotia and uh, developed strategic uh, relationships with the Mi'kmaq Indians who were part
1: of the larger Gonquin Nation. And, and uh, I mean, you you have rediscovered uh, this settlement, but let's talk about the the Indian legends about uh, um, Henry Sinclair. Glooscap, is that what they called him?
2: Glooscap. Glooscap was a spiritual man god of the Mi'kmaq and uh, I, people, there's a delicate situation here that uh, the Mi'kmaq, the first nation people of which I am part of, feel that it's in a negative terms, it, and I have to describe it very gently, that they they get offended to think that Glooscap was a European. Uh, the the whole notion is that Prince Henry Sinclair Clair assumed certain attributes of Gluscap so that he could pass on his knowledge, but the key here is is that the First Nations people obviously recognize a higher spiritual value in the Europeans than Prince Henry Sinclair Clair and the Templars that came over with them, and they obviously recognize certain common origins, certain beliefs. Uh, belief in the force of nature, and a belief in the understanding of a higher, of a higher being. And uh, so let's just say that uh, Prince Henry St. at certain times developed or possessed uh, attributes uh, similar to Glooscap.
1: I got it. Okay. So, I mean, how did they survive in the new world? Uh, you know, given that we think of, of course, we learn about Samuel de Champlain in school and what, mm-hmm, a, what mm-hmm. a miserable time the French had in gaining a foothold in North America before him. You know, uh, Cartier and, and John Cabot, they all, uh, it took so many tries uh, to actually, you know, manage to, to survive. How did the, uh, the the Templars fare in North America? How did they well, get on?
2: Well, the notion is is that the Templars possessed this earlier knowledge, and they possessed the sign seals and tokens which would have demonstrated that they were per, part of certain secret societies, pre-Christian societies, like the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, the Romans, and the Greeks. Certain society, uh, the the notion that there uh, was a transatlantic trade going both ways between the native North Americans and uh, certain societies uh, in the Mediterranean and throughout Europe. But it's really not hard to, to fathom when you think about it. So there was notions that there were strategic intermarriages developed over thousands of years through various societies. And the Templars had those signs uh, and tokens that were recognizable to the First Nation people. So they recognized people that had came before them. And that uh, you're right. The Europeans like Cartier and even Champlain and Hennepin and, uh, and others, the first French explorers, the only way they made it inland was to develop strategic intermarriages with the natives. There was, when Prince Henry Sinclair arrived, there was an easily recognizable a commonality between the various societies. And the Templars didn't impose their will on the natives. They recognized them as their uh, blood brothers if you want to really capture it that way. And so did they intermarry? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, and, uh, and with my background, I've been able to discover and being able to demonstrate that those strategic intermarriages have been occurring for thousands of years. And uh, the notion that uh, there were strategic intermarriages before Champlain, um, really to the French, the Quebecois, is very hard to fathom. Uh, they believe that they came and imposed their will on the land and took the land, uh, in the Templar case, in Prince Henry St. Clair's case, uh, he wouldn't be able to have traversed North America without, without
1: the larger Algonquin nation's help. And talk to me about their, um, their mining operations in the New World.
2: Well, obviously, the, uh, the Templars, coming from where they were, possessed certain knowledge Um, The way they defeated the Saracens during the uh, First Crusades is that they possessed a certain knowledge in terms of producing what's known as light blue steel. And uh, that required uh, uh, heavy deposits of manganese and titanium and other rare earth minerals, which they uh, had the knowledge of. And this is really what what set them aside. They possessed certain knowledge. Which, uh, of course, they would have considered to be secret, but uh, knowledge that applied to mining operations, to smelting, to ironworks, uh, metalworks—that uh, the, that in fact the uh, North American Indians didn't possess, and that uh, there would have been a sharing of certain knowledges, and this is how the uh, Templars thrived in pre, in pre-Columbian uh, times in uh, North America.
1: And were they were they. Um mining gold as well
2: absolutely gold silver they would recognize the potential of that not for their uh not for the physical value per se but the uh, um or monetary value but there were other attributes associated with gold and other minerals the uh alchemical attributes if you really want to uh, frame it that way. But uh, they would have recognized certain attributes of certain minerals that, that uh, they could uh, use on, on a variety of issues.
1: And uh, the tr- they, how much of the treasure uh, – I, I mean I, I know a lot of it is, is metaphorical and a lot of it is knowledge. But I'm guessing that there were also some amazing uh, artifacts from yes. Solomon's temple – were they all brought over to North America?
2: I would, I would say eventually. But one thing about the Templars that I've, as I gained this, this knowledge myself, you realize that they were very strategic in anything that they did. They would have, if you want to use the metaphor, uh, wouldn't have put in all their eggs in one basket. But the whole notion was is that in North America, they recognized certain values that they were going to establish a new Jerusalem, And Francis Bacon spoke to this, uh, one of the earliest Rosicrucians. They were looking to establish a New Jerusalem where people could live in peace no matter what creed, color, religion. And um, that that really was the value to the treasure that they – but obviously they also recognized, being Europeans as they were, that you needed certain sacred relics to uh, re-sanctify or sanctify the temple. So those relics would have possessed a certain level of uh, sp- spiritual value that they brought those treasures together once once again um, in uh, 1398 through Prince Henry St. Clair and other Templars.
1: More of my conversation with Bill Mann when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. It's Friday, that means a visit from Christian Decadure, the co-host of Reverse Speech Radio. Now, today, we have something very unusual. This is a very frightening clip of someone who appears to be demonically possessed. Tell us about it.
3: This is a clip from one of the first episodes in the early 1990s from, I believe it was ABC Nightline. It involves a young lady who was demonically possessed. And the first clip that you're about to hear, she is speaking in, I'm not a linguist by any stretch of the imagination, and I, I can't sit here and say that uh, I, I know exactly what her forward, what she's speaking, or making any sense of it. In fact, this is why reverse speech is so amazing and so important, because it's all gibberish. And if it's not gibberish, then it is, it's a demon speaking through her clearly. Uh, this person needs help and is asking for help. And it's, it's quite disturbing, so let all your listeners be forewarned. This is the real deal here. And this is not just an average clip. This is ABC Nightline. There's some credibility here surrounding this particular case and this particular file.
1: All right, let's have a listen. <laughs> All right. So obviously it was gibberish uh, in the beginning, this demonically possessed uh, young girl speaking some sort of a language, but not known to me. And then in the reversal, as it slows down, she's very clearly saying, heal among us. Heal among us. What is that all about?
3: Well, my interpretation is, and again, uh, for your listeners who may or may not know, I'm uh, I'm very involved with a company, uh, one of my companies by the name of Paranormal Contractors, and this is part and parcel. So I I do this for a lot of our clients, but um, using reverse speech in this particular case for demonic possession, I feel based on my experience, we're either hearing her unconscious mind through her gibberish forward requesting to be healed. Now it's either one of two things, it's either she's asking for the help or It's multiple demons within her that are asking for some form of relief.
1: Unbelievable. So if she was simply speaking gibberish, you wouldn't get a reversal.
3: No, and and this is why it's clear as day. Heal among us. Yes. It's clear as day. So for all the naysayers and the haters and and the doubters, I mean, it's right there. It's as clear as day.
1: This is just a taste of what you'll hear every week on Reverse Speech Radio, hosted by Christian D. Cadieux and David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech. How do people listen?
3: They can listen uh, by going to reversespeech.ca, or you can find us on the Libsyn platform.
1: And that's reversespeechradio.libsyn.com. reversespeechradio.libsyn.com. Speak to you next week, Christian.
3: Sounds great, Richard. Look forward to it.
1: Did you get the tea? Well, I've been getting mine. It comes in the mail every month. Eight amazing tea bags of Life Change Tea and Formula 13 Tea. I brew it up, let it steep, then pop it in the fridge. Eight bags of this amazing organic, caffeine-free herbal tea is enough to last the entire month. Now, I'm being gently cleansed and I've never felt better, truly. I want the whole world to know how energized I feel, how happy I am. And have I mentioned I've dropped some weight and it stays off? Good health starts with a healthy gut and digestive system, and that means a clean colon. Life Change Tea and Formula 13 Teas are made from all natural ingredients. I'm enjoying the pomegranate and the peppermint. Why not discover the benefits for yourself? And my friends at GetTheTea.com have made it real easy. Go to GetTheTea.com and use the code UNLIMITED when making your first purchase. Your first order then ships for free. Life Change Tea and Formula 13 Tea from getthetea.com
0: Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: Bill Mann is here discussing the Knights Templar in North America. We have to obviously talk about Oak Island Yes. Uh, and the legend that uh, perhaps, I mean, some people think it's Bluebeard's plunder that's buried there, and others believe the kid, but some maintain that it is, in fact, Templar treasure. What, what are your thoughts? What does is, what is your research tell you?
2: Well, what my research tells me is that maybe at one time, and yeah, you have to go back to this notion that uh, very much like the Catholic Church, the Church built upon earlier original foundation, pagan foundations, the Templars, I believe, assumed the uh, the underground works at Oak Island on a temporary basis for to deposit the Templar treasure and to consolidate it. But knowing the Templars, as I do, they would have developed ways of uh, accessing the waterworks and retrieving the treasure, and it was just a temporary depository. But then others, such as Francis Bacon himself, John Dee, moving right into the uh, 18th century British military, the, the high-ranking officers who were all Masons and Templars, they would assume the works for their own purposes. And that's the whole moral of the story. Look beyond, because, it, because certain things are being built upon, found certain foundations are being built upon uh, layer
1: by layer. And so you have to peel back the layers. People often talk about the United States, the idea of the United States being a a Masonic plot. But it sounds like it goes back that it was, in fact, a a Knights Templar plot, as you mentioned, the idea of building this new Jerusalem. Is, 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 Is that maybe what informed the Founding Fathers?
2: Absolutely. And a lot of people don't realize, everybody thinks that it was because they watched the movie's Da Vinci Code and National Treasure, that they think that the, uh, the Founding Fathers were, in fact, practicing some ancient ritual that they had uh, revised. But what people have to understand is that there was a continuous uh, layering of certain uh, values associated with the Knights Templar and even before the Knights Templar. Um, that really culminated in some in most of the founding fathers and what they were originally thinking as the establishment of the United States of America. Unfortunately, it sort of got railroaded by uh, certain puritanical views, and all of a sudden it became Christianized. It uh, the whole basis of the founding a new Jerusalem was based upon, uh, in fact, matriarchal lines. Uh, Evolving out of Mary Magdalene and, and the Egyptian priestess um, to, the, to the point that uh, um, somewhere along the line it got hijacked. That whole notion of the goddess uh, got hijacked into an omnipotent uh, god or supreme being.
1: And was the, the, the physical treasure – uh, that they had was yeah. that was that ba- buried in or hidden in strategic places to be used for as the sort of the economic foundation of New Jerusalem.
2: It was, it was, and that's the whole notion. But again, they wouldn't have put all their eggs in one basket, so that that treasure would have been distributed across North America, as Prince Henry Sinclair and uh, his Templars, and by that time the. Uh, the families that they had intermarried into the Native American families first Nations people um, generation after generation would have become guardians of a certain portion of those treasures
1: how far inland did they did they uh, they get the Templars and sinclair
2: well, I've been able to trace them all the way across uh, North America to the foot of hills of the Rockies. And people ask me, why the foot of hills of the Rockies? And I say, if you look at the larger Algonquin nation of the Mi'kmaq, can consists of only one nation. But you're talking about everybody from the Algonquins to the Ojibwe to the Plains Indians to the Blackfoot to the Cherokee. Uh, all of those nations spoke a common leg and shared certain common values. Uh, to make up the larger Goncourt nation. So it, it was essentially transported finally to what I refer to as the last refuge in the Knights Templar positioned within the foothills of the Rockies.
1: Are there maps uh, detailing where all of these treasures were hidden? There's portions of maps,
2: and there's clues. And again, what you have to understand is once you, once you're able to become or – enlist the mindset of the medieval Knights Templar, the Rosicrucian basis, Masonic basis, moving into Knights Templarism, uh, modern day time, being able to apply all those values, you start to interpret certain signs, as I say, signs, uh, seals, and tokens.
1: Right, right. Um, And I'm guessing that the they would overlay uh i mean you can't just you can't just have a map and, and which says you know head to the oak tree and take 40 steps yeah. to the left because those geographical features will be gone over time they'll be replaced they it's that Joni Mitchell song they tore down paradise and put up a parking lot and but so on, forth
2: but it's, on the other hand certain landforms right uh exist for centuries that's true uh landforms like uh in uh, Nova Scotia, along the South Shore, there's what they call Aspatago Mountain. It's a large limestone outcrop, and it's been a beacon for sailors for centuries. Uh, where I live, just outside of Toronto, you have Rattlesnake Point, which is uh, a preserved limestone outcrop that existed for centuries again. As you move through the landscape, the Templars were trained to identify really land forms that wouldn't be altered over centuries. And they were some of the major landforms that fell upon what I refer to as Templar meridians. And through that, you can actually, what I've been able to do is reconstruct the, uh, the overall Templar map based on uh, certain latitudes and longitudes and uh, find that uh, it's, it fits beyond my wildest dreams.
1: And have you discovered Templar treasure or the possible location of Templar treasure in, in our backyard up here in, you know, the, uh, the, the the escarpment or southwestern Ontario?
2: I have, yes. Yeah, I won't tell you what it is, but uh, I've discovered certain relics and artifacts that really confirm the existence of uh, that earlier Templar presence as it made its way across the North America from the east to the west.
1: Recently, I spoke with... Uh, Uh, Jesse James' great-great-grandson, I I mean, he claims to be in, he's presented, I think, some pretty good evidence to suggest he is the Mm great-great-grandson. And um, the name of the book, actually, is Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but Jesse James, the great uh, train-robbing outlaw, supposedly faked his death. And lived to a ripe old age in uh, in Texas uh, up until 1943. Upon his, he lived uh, under the name James Courtney, and um, it was a, you know, sort of hiding in. It was uh, the worst kept secret. Everyone around him knew. However, he left these maps, and uh, they appear to have some some you know Templar make use of Templar symbols and so forth. Uh, he was also a, a Mason and um he uh, it seems like he utilized I, I believe it's called the veil uh when when he was laying out his maps and so that his yes. his and he stole untold amounts of gold from the union uh, army and so forth uh but, but he 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 used sort of templar symbology in their in their map making uh in order to hide his treasure is that I'm, I'm, I'm very much familiar with, ah. uh,
2: with his story, and I'm very, very much familiar with the, uh, with the author. And uh, um, there's a lot of truth to the story. Again, uh, a lot of people want to associate him with the direct tempter treasure. What is the tempter treasure? Well, the treasure per se is this knowledge and its application. Obviously, members of various circles of uh, circles, inner circles, and secret societies. And it was the notion is, is that uh, uh, Jesse James was a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle, right? Uh, and, yes, at some point, and, the yeah. night, and the Knights of the Golden Circle were supposedly associated with the uh, conspirators, uh, the assassinators of uh, Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And one of them, uh, was in fact the uh, the first sovereign grand commander of the uh, uh, Scottish right of the Southern Jurisdiction of the USA, uh, a really interesting character, uh, Brigadier General Albert Pike. Ah, yes. And Albert Pike wrote uh, Morals and Dogma. Um, and Morals and Dogma essentially provides the basis. What happened during the Civil War and uh, before the Civil War – all of the, all of the various degrees, of Scottish Rite Masonry, could start to get mixed mixed up. So he was the one who was able to, after the Civil War, consolidate all the degrees into a into a concise 32 degree uh, evolution through the Scottish Rite. And it's not it's a notion that were they Templars, they were Templars in part, but what they were able to do is access certain knowledge where they were able to apply. That, that higher level of, uh, of application, that knowledge physically in an operative uh, way to the point that they were able to create maps or to apply certain sacred geometry to maps where they hid the treasure. Um, in Jesse James' uh, case, the, there was the notion that uh, the South would rise again and that these deposits are being guarded. To this day, in fact, and many of them being guarded by uh, continuous generations of what they refer to as Templar Guardians.
1: Fascinating. Fascinating.
2: It is. It is. And uh, every so often you hear somebody discovering a catch of uh, gold coins or whatever from the Civil War re- basis. And now we have the uh, curse of Civil War gold from the, uh, the same Michigan brothers who I just love. Um because they're non masons and they're moving they're moving through um, uh, certain uh, rumors and notions of treasure and they're applying uh, modern day scientific and engineering applications, but what they forget the uh, to apply, or what they haven't applied is, per se, is the moral allegory and the sacred geometry that is the basis for not only masonry and Knights Templarism, but uh, other secret societies, including uh, Rosicrucianism.
1: Someone sent me an old article in which uh, they believe Jesse James' treasure may be up in Malmer, Ontario. Could that be also connected with uh, the Knights Templar? All, all
2: of this, again, what you have to understand is you have to look at the bigger picture. All of this has certain applications or bits of the whole mystique surrounding the Knights Templar. But essentially it's the basis of uh, – it's, it's an application of two main principles of Masonry. Moral allegory or metaphor and uh, sacred geometry. Uh, there is a, that interesting story that Jesse James had uh, relatives up in Mulmur, and that a portion of the treasure was uh, was at certain times transported. Uh, at that time, it, there would virtually be an uh, an open border across the, both the United States and Canada, or even prior to British North America. There would essentially what we're doing is looking at the wilderness or North America, and uh, and people. People seem to think, "Oh, well, you know, he had to cross the border. He had to declare that he had this treasure." Uh, at that point in time, there was no such thing.
1: What of the uh, the Sinclair uh, family in North America now? Are they are they still sort of behind the scenes, very powerful?
2: Uh, the Sinclairs is like any Scottish family, very hardworking families um, that have been very successful throughout the generations. And there are some Sinclair families that, uh, that are more associated with Prince Henry and Sinclair than, uh, than other families. A um, good friend of mine, Steve Sinclair, he heads up the Sinclair Research um, uh, Society out of uh, New England. Um, they've done a lot of DNA testing and they found out a lot of Sinclair's um, don't have the basic markers of Prince Henry Sinclair, per se. Um, the bloodline has been obviously diluted, uh, or um, I guess you would say dispersed. But right. uh, um, the whole thing with the, with the bloodline is that certain secrets, because of attrition, because of plagues, because of war, portions of those secrets would have been lost, And it's only now somebody like myself that is immersed, because of my family background, immersed in the Templarism, is that I'm starting to put the uh, pieces together. But it's interesting, when you start thinking like a Templar, things start really popping out, and there's signs, seals, tokens, as I say, throughout the landscape, throughout society.
1: Yes, speaking of your your, uh, your family, tell me about your late great-uncle. He was the Supreme Grand Master of the Knights Templar of Canada. He was, he was. And you have to understand that uh, I was born in 54,
2: and uh, he just finished his term, interesting enough. But I didn't know uh, until I became a Mason myself about 25 years ago. I didn't uh, discover really the... Uh, uh, the background, because at that time, Masons and Templars really considered very secretive um, what they were up to. Um, but nowadays, things are coming out, and uh, I've discovered a whole lot about my great-uncle, that, uh, who was like my surrogate grandfather, that I never knew uh, even before. I thought he was just this he and, uh, he and his brother, my other great uncle, were just eccentric uh, uh, Englishmen that would practice uh, uh, gibberish in front of me when I was about five years old, not realizing that they were actually pra- uh, practicing their memory work uh, for various rituals and such uh, uh, in front of me uh, when they came to visit. So I've been immersed in, uh, in uh, the values of masonry ever since I can remember and it was fascinating.
1: And were the the Templars eventually found out here and also persecuted and and uh, sort of hounded?
2: Well, they were they were constantly on the run. And uh for centuries they were being pursued by the church and European royalty and they were hounded and uh, they're probably the most famous or infamous um uh, pursuers were the Jesuits, the early Jesuits coming out of uh, New France that were pursuing them across the, uh, across the continent, across what was considered at that time to be Turtle Island, and you can see that a number, a uh, number of the early explorers were in fact Jesuit explorers, and that they realized very early on that. Uh, part of the secret of where the last refuge of the Knights Templar lay, uh, really uh, lay with the uh, Native Americans, that uh, you know, through oral memory, there were stories of these knights moving across with the aid of the indigenous people across North America.
1: So the Jesuits uh, who were the explorers, that was really just a cover, they were in pursuit of the Knights Templar. That's That's
2: what I uh, have discovered. And uh, a very good instance is that some of the first Jesuits that came to New France, they didn't settle in Quebec City or Montreal, but they moved uh, directly inland to St. Marie among the Hurons in Midland. And Midland, interesting enough, falls exactly on what I refer to as one of my uh, temper meridians. Uh, So there was a notion that the Jesuits, through whatever, through the Inquisition or whatever, they were able to to start to piece together some of these secrets, which allowed them to pursue the Knights Templar across North America.
1: And are, are there is there a resurgence in the Templars? I, I mean, are they going to do you think become prominent again?
2: I I would I would hope so. Not because. Of you know the world doesn't need another group of of a sovereign state or whatever, but the Templars over the centuries have been the negotiators. They have been the middleman between the Muslims and the Christians, and and that's part of the power that they possessed. They possessed this understanding and knowledge, and I would like to see that the modern day Knights Templar, in actual fact, take take on that role once again because. I don't know how you feel, but I think uh, the world's getting to a point where they they need a certain morality, integrity. Um, just watching the Mueller uh, hearing the today, they need a certain foundation that they've uh, they've forgotten, and I think the modern day Knights Templar can provide that basis.
1: Bill, how do people get uh, copies of your um, uh, the, the Knights Templar in the New World, the, the Templar Meridians, the secret mapping of the New World? Where do we get these?
2: Well, the books can be ordered through uh, Amazon or Indigo or Chapters, um, but they, uh, they also can uh, be ordered uh, right through my publisher, uh, Inner Traditions. So they can go to the uh, Inner Traditions website, www.innertraditionsalloneword.com.
1: Bill, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much.
2: You're welcome. You're
1: welcome. It was uh, really good to talk to you, Richard. Okay, before I say goodnight to the moon over Messenia, I'll be back in a flash to fill you in on what's coming up on episode 262. Hey, if you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, you're going to want to check out my brand new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet Shop. There's an exclusive line of men and women's classic tees with a very cool design. It's a limited run and a limited time offer, a special price of $21 U.S. That lasts only until August the 19th. There are also mugs, tote bags and stickers. Go to strangeplanet.ca strangeplanet.ca and find the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. The Strange Planet Shop at strangeplanet.ca Coming up Monday Did William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon really write all those incredible plays and poems? My guest says no. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. Kalinichta.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind.